Let me tell you about my handouts I got. I got one that I don't, don't expect many of you are going to want. I only have about five copies of this one. Now, this one, hold on, Matt. Here you go. This one is a pretty detailed chapter from a book on an introduction to the Psalms by a guy named Fatato. Sarah Braun had asked for this. And it's basically an overview of the whole book of Psalms. It's pretty heavy. It's good, but it's dense. Uh, there's four of them. I happen to have about 25 or 30 of the others that I have. My old OTI professor, Bill Barrick, are the head of the um, Old Testament Department of Master Seminary. He taught a Sunday school class at his church through the Psalms, and he freely makes available his notes. And so I printed off two of them. Because you, yeah, you would. That'd be great. Um, and I'm guessing if you want one, you want both. One of these is an introduction to the Psalms, which is fantastic. And they're each like three or four pages long. And the other is looking at the five books of the Psalms. And that actually will deal somewhat with the Psalm titles issue that we talked about last week. Both of them are very readable, very accessible, um, not heavy reads, and yet really still, I think, edifying and good. And so if we run out of these, I can make some more for next week. Um, but I got about 40 of one, 25 of the other, and I, I think they will encourage and bless you. So um, we'll hand them out and... If, if you run out, don't give the last one up. We'll just go photocopy some more. Th these are really good. And Bill Barrick's just fantastic. He's, he's, uh, he's <clears throat> he knows his stuff. He is a, a godly and wise man. So, with that said, um, we can pick it up from any questions or thoughts from this morning's look at Psalm 9, or we can even go back if you have any remaining questions from Psalm 16. Um, and, uh, yeah, any, any questions? Oh, Naomi's got one. Okay, Naomi. I was just wondering, you might cover this um, in whatever you had, um, but I was just wondering who the choir master refers to. The choir master, good question, is, um, and then you may notice this morning, I didn't, I'll remind you, I will get to your question in just a second. I'll remind you of the Thirtle's theory of psalm titles, which, by the way, in the, uh, in the handout that covers the five books of the psalms, he actually briefly addresses that. And uh, this, according to the pattern we see of the psalm that's in Habakkuk 3, Habakkuk 3 contains an entire psalm, which has a prescript and a postscript. As far as we can tell, the musical notation is the postscript. So the, the, the psalm in, in Hezekiah, in, Habakkuk. Hezekiah is not a book. He's a character, but he's not a book. Um, Habakkuk 3. Um, in fact, I think says to the choir master, is at the end. So if that pattern holds, then really to the choir master is the end of Psalm 8. And then of David, a Psalm of David would be the beginning of Psalm 9, which is how I read it this morning. Um, and like I said, in these notes, partly that's explained. So the choir master would simply be um, this the psalms that are tied to the choir master seem to be explicitly for corporate singing. So God gives a songbook to Israel that um, some of them are private laments, some of them are very personal, individual. I mean, maybe, maybe they do sing them together, but you could picture this is a song for someone in great afflictions. Maybe they're lying in bed, can't sleep at night. This is a song or a song for them to sing privately. To the choir master means minimally this is meant for corporate praise, corporate singing even if you were to individually 
appropriate it and saying it. It's absolutely letting us know this is fully appropriate for the congregation, for the assembly, which is kind of weird because when you think of Psalm 10, we don't generally sing songs that go on verse after verse describing the wicked. And yet if God can be trusted, and I think he can, maybe we should. I mean, it's just weird being challenged with the things and the scope of the things being sung corporately. So whenever you got a psalm to the choir master, this is apparently appropriate for the congregation. This is apparently appropriate for the gathering. Um, and so I, I always find that's my medium-sized answer to what does the choir master mean. Um, Ron, in the back. No, you need a mic microphone. Microphone. No, no. You play by the rules, Ron. Play by the rules. No, that's that's the overview of the book of Psalms. Remember last week I was, pause one sec, Ron. Remember last week, that's Futado, where he basically talks about the, the entire structure and how Israel's history kind of is shown in the seams of the books. And anyway, that's all laid out there, Sarah Dasford. That's kind of heavy. Um, so just fair warning. Yes, Ron. Um, I just have a question. The name of the author of that book that you said about the summary of the Psalms? Is Futado. Oh, um, uh, Elsa's got it. Futato, potato, potato, futato, futato. Yes. Okay. Any other questions? Yes, Lois. I need a blank filled in. Oh, dear. Number four, David's... Worship leads. Private worship. Oh, Number David's call. David's call. call. I think I only said that once. You've got to find the C's, and so some of them don't... Yeah. Well, I figure if the psalm is an acrostic, I can do my outline in an acrostic. Right? Yeah. Um, so you got David's... So I'll just give you all of them, one through... I'll even give you a six, even though we didn't hit six. David's commitment, personal praise... David's comfort, God's past judgment. David's certainty, the eternal king. David's call, corporate praise. David's cry, deliver me. David's confidence, God will judge. That's the, any other blanks you guys want? I didn't do blanks for number six because we're going to pick up on number six next week. But any other blanks missed? Oh, we don't have blanks missed, I don't think, but I think we have a question. Uh, what you said about oops, private worship leads to public worship yes. and reminded me of Psalm 51 uh, where David is confessing and repenting and asking to be restored uh, after he sinned. And verse 13, it says, and then I will teach transgressors your ways. Yep, and then and the, yeah. the sinners will return. Yes. It's even, even in our sin, God can use that. Wow. When we... uh, no, these testimonies and this pattern of private, let, let's, can I, I'll take that and just show a couple of examples. Probably my favorite psalm in the Psalter, mostly because um, I think it, when I got, when the Lord converted me, it just really um, was, I found encouraging and I identified a lot with Psalm 40. Turn to Psalm 40. You'll see the exact same movement um, in Psalm 40. And it's going to start with personal testimony. This is individual. 
Um, I waited patiently for, well, Psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He climbed and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to God. Many will see in fear and put their trust in God. So God does this private act of deliverance, which leads to David singing and telling others about, which then leads to them putting their trust in God. So one of the, one of the things to keep in mind is if you're looking for God to, you're asking for God to act on your behalf to deliver you, to, to vindicate you, to protect you, preserve you, are you intending, are you hoping, are you planning on, if he does, sharing that with others? Because that's the argument David's bringing. Save me so that I can tell other people about what you've done. You know, I mean, so, so that's important. If, if you don't like doing that, if you don't do that, you're, well, you know, um, David seems to be offering up reasons he thinks will motivate God. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Um, so, yeah, Lee. The microphone over. It's coming, it's coming. Naomi's coming behind you. No, 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 no. But the mom voice doesn't work on the podcast. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I was just thinking what you were saying just there that um, when I think of my own life and some of the miry bogs I was mm -hmm. in, and I mean, I don't have a lot of shame because I know, I personally know everybody's a sinner. So it doesn't break my heart to tell people about my problems because I know most of them have something. Zeb's cutting his mom off. <laughs> ah. <laughs> okay. Can can you hear Thank me? You. Okay. Thank you. Uh, okay. Excellent. Thank so, you. in the instance that, what if a person is super shy, and they they are just horribly embarrassed by their previous life, and then they don't want to ever say anything about it? What then? Where does it go? Um, I, this, this gets back, whoa, now everyone's, I'm really loud now. Um, I'd say that, I mean, so people, so that's a good point. It'll be harder for some people to do this than others. I think the clear point, I can show you again and again in scripture is God intends for all of his people to do this. So this isn't optional. Now, maybe your progress in doing that is slower. Maybe you just write a little note on a piece of paper and slip it in to the offering, pray for, praise, whatever. Maybe you get your husband or your wife to do it on your behalf. Great. But what I don't think you get to say is, that's not my personality type. I, I No, I don't think so. It's so clearly repeated that God, here's the pattern. We get the blessing, he gets the praise. And and so we, we get the deliverance, we get the help, we get the grace, and he gets the glory. That's such a clear pattern. I don't think it gets to be broken because, you know, I just don't like talking. Okay, I get that it's going to be harder for you, and I get that different people will do it to different degrees. We don't all have to do it the same, but that is something we must, I th and I think we can look at some more examples. It, it's just so repeatedly the pattern. Find a way to tell of God's glory. You know, find a there, there. You can be creative, and in the online world, whether you post a Facebook update or whether you can I put an anonymous thing in the messenger. You know, no, seriously. If you really are terrified of speaking, like think of some other ways. But God intends for that to happen, and think of the blessing. I mean, I can just tell you all, nothing encourages me more 
really, than hearing about God's faithfulness in other people's lives. Nothing encourages me more. I know when you came, it was just so encouraging when we when we first spoke back when I was doing James in the fireside room. And no, to know that God is at work, right? Um, it, it's incredibly encouraging. So, so part of it's just thinking beyond yourself. It's not about you. God delivered you, but he di- delivered you, and he means to bless more than you by that. So, so get creative, ask for help. There's different ways that's going to look, and for some people it's going to come too easily, um, and some people it's going to come too difficultly. But please don't think you aren't excluded for some reason from this. That would be my answer. Um, I mean, keep, keep going in Psalm 40, right? So, so it looks as though in verse 4, as David shifts from first person, the Lord delivered me, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. I kind of think Psalm verse 4 is his new song. It's, it's in the wisdom literature. Blessed is the man. It sounds like you know Psalm 1, blessed is the man of the Proverbs. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them. And if they're more, they can be told. By the way, another argument I'd make for why God intends for all of us to do this is, especially the psalms are to the choir master, God intends his people to sing, right? Does he intend them to sing it in lie? How? I mean, if you've decided, I'm just not one of those people who talk, you better be silent when we're singing this one or reading this one, or you're bearing false witness. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book it has written me. I delight to do your will, O my God, your laws in my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. Restraining your lips sounds like a bad thing to do, right? Um, as you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. The way he's framing that doesn't make it sound like that's a neutral thing. If God's delivered you and you hide it and you restrain your lips based on this phrasing, it sure sounds to me like that's put in a negative light. That's not a good thing to do. Um, I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Notice that that's where I talk about the, the reciprocity. You want God's mercy? You don't want him to restrain his mercy? Don't restrain your lips. That's absolutely the logic David's using here. You, I have not restrained my lips. As for you, you will not restrain your mercy. So if you're eager to get the blessing and the mercy side of this, it, it seems as though you might invite, you might... <laughs> get that ball rolling if you speak on the other side as well to tell people of what God has done. Um, and the reason, one of the reasons why I love Psalm 40 is he's doing all this stuff, and yet he's recognizing he's bogged down in sin. Some of the Psalms are really intimidate me because, like, according to my righteousness, vindicate me. I'm like, yeah, I, I can't say that. And he's not saying absolute righteousness. He's saying in this situation, I'm innocent. In this case, my enemies are attacking me. Vindicate me according to my righteousness. I love this. He's doing all this. And then for evils have encompassed me without number, verse 12. My iniquities have overtaken me, I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, my heart fails within me. And I found such comfort as a new Christian. And simultaneously, there's this deliverance, there's this transformation, there's this change that God has done. And yet, I'm still struggling with sin and finding, hey, here's a song where they coexist. 
You know, here's a psalm that has somebody testifying to God's goodness, has somebody in fellowship, has somebody speaking of God as an and saying, help, my sins are, I'm drowning in them. And so that's one of the reasons I love Psalm 40 is seeing both of these. Because there are some just penitential repentant psalms. But again, in one song, at one time, both of these are present. Very encouraging to me. At, at least it was 20, this summer will be 20 years. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, um, that's going back to that repeating and telling. But it's, it, and that's just one psalm. I could show you again and again and again and again and again. Or you go back to Deuteronomy, you'll speak to these to your children, you'll tell them of this. And the great tragedy in the book of Judges is in chapter 2, there arose a generation that neither feared the Lord nor knew what he had done. I mean, think they didn't know about the Exodus. They didn't know about the parting of the Red Sea. They didn't know about Sinai. I mean, what an absolute failure this generation of parents was. You can't make your kids fear God. You can teach them to fear the Lord, but they don't even know about it. Maybe they just were shy. Yeah, I don't think so. That's not, that, those, the, that dog's not going to hunt. So, okay. Um, and I don't want to make light of people struggling with shyness, but struggle with it is my point, is don't be at peace with it. Okay, questions. Yes, Sarah. So something... Something I've always wondered with the Psalms. The, the mic's on. It's lit up. Okay. Something but no, it's, but it's not audibly on. There you go. You got to speak right up on that thing. You got Sarah right up here. Okay. Now you give people a mic and they, their arm gets further and further away. Eventually, they're like. Okay. So something I've always wondered about the Psalms is we see in the New Testament how we're supposed to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, but then we see David who's saying, God, destroy my enemies. I don't like them. Yes. So how do those things coincide? That is a very good question, Sarah. I'm, I'm really hot now. Hot, hot mic, hot mic. Okay. Uh, That's a very good question. I was actually talking to Daniel about it earlier this week, that same issue. Um, I don't think the New Testament is negating something in the Old Testament. You'll hear that sometimes. The Old Testament God is angry. The New Testament God is love. Um, although I, I will say this, the Old Testament certainly talks about, even in the Proverbs, do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Um, but there is a place, certainly, for, for calling out for justice. There's Notice in Psalm 9, David's not taking matters into his own hand. And David twice has an opportunity to take Saul's life. And he says, far be it from me that I might strike or touch the Lord's anointed. Um, so just because you're calling on God to judge the wicked and your enemies does not mean you cannot also give them a glass of water, rake holes over their head, show kindness to them. Um, it, one of the ways I like to look at it is, Lord, you need to defeat these people. You can either defeat them by making them your friends. You can defeat their rebellion by, by causing them to bow the knee to Christ. Or you can defeat them by ridding the earth of them. Defeat them. Defeat their rebellion. And sometimes when I'll hear about um, atrocities taking place in the world, like, Lord, redeem them or kill them. But have, either way, stop them from doing the harm they're doing. Whether you do that by making them your sons and daughters, whether you do that by bringing them to know you, or whether you do that through judgment, amen. And even, but to show even in the New Testament, and this is, a, this is absolutely attention. I want to go further, but let's go to Revelation chapter, I think, uh, hmm. 
under the throne, the saints under the throne. Seven? That's seven? What? Both of you? Okay. Oh, inside jokes. Okay. Um, yes, six. So here we're going to have, I'm going to presume, sinless people because they're dead under the throne of God in heaven and God doesn't allow wickedness into heaven. So what we're about to see, this prayer request, is from sinless people. Verse 9 of chapter 6. Then he opened the fifth seal. I saw unto the altar the souls of those who'd been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a holy voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now, I only want to point that out to say that it's, it's, you can't say that's just an Old Testament theme. Because here it is, right in the New Testament. You got Paul talking about um, Simon the coppersmith who withstood him, but the Lord will repay him for his evil deeds. I mean, you, you've got some of this stuff. Now, what does make it trickier is I think it's a lot easier under the Old Covenant where you've got clear national boundaries. There's Israel and there's Israel's enemies. Um, so those identities are clear. And everyone's welcome to come know the living God by becoming an Israelite. But while they remain a Philistine, they remain enemies, right? So in one sense, it is a lot easier to pray, like there's a battle coming up. Oh, Lord, defeat them. Strike them down. You know, they're, they're, they're raping and, and pillaging and, and killing our people. And they're our national enemy. Kill them, you know? Um, it certainly is a lot trickier. The other trick, the other thing that makes it more difficult for us is it never should be about our own anger. I mean, even at the end of Psalm 9, and we'll get into this tomorrow, ne next week, but look at the end of Psalm 9. What ultimately offends David about the wicked is their snobbery to God. I mean, he is also offended by their treatment of the poor and the oppressed, but right up there is they say there is no God. Right, so look at, look at how the chapter, Psalm 9 ends, verse 20. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men. They've gotten too big for themselves. They think they're all tough and powerful. Lord, humble them. Lord, and ultimately that gives you some insight because people can become repentant from that realization. But there's no salvation for people until they get humbled and put in their place. So some people God's going to put in their place and they're going to be destroyed. And some people are going to get put in their place and they're going to repent and bow the knee and turn and trust in, in Messiah. But that step, what's bothering David is they think they're more than just men. And then you go into Psalm 10 and you get this, this, this theological, we'll, we'll deal with this next week, but, but stop and think, why do we get 11 verses describing the wicked? Why can't we just say they're really bad? Really, really, really bad. And part of it, I think, is to guard us from it. Because the wicked aren't just people with curly mustaches. The wicked just simply say things like, that's okay, God's not going to judge it. It's okay. I'll be okay. I'll get away with this. That's the wicked. Just as much as I'm lurking for blood, innocent blood. And so he gives this, this, this um, profile of the wicked that's extensive, um, and, and a lot of what offends them about the wicked is their arrogance towards God. It's, it's, in other words, it's righteous anger. Most of our anger is not. I mean, one of the things my wife will say to me, which, yeah, ladies, 
or men. You can say this. You need to say it sincerely because if what I'm about to say is said snidely, it just is another dagger or knife. But if you can sincerely say this, it'll take the wind out of most people's sails. Jeremy, are you are you upset? Are you around? Are you uh, uh, irritated? Are you? Is it your passion because God is being dishonored and for my good and the good of our family, or because your will is being thwarted? Now, we know there is a righteous anger. Zeal for your house consuming. That's why Jesus cleanses the temple. And no, there is a place, clearly, for a righteous anger where you say, Lord, judge the wicked. But again, you're not doing it yourself. You're not taking vengeance into your own hands. And God knows when the wicked need to be judged, and God knows when they need more time. According to Romans 2, his patience is meant to bring us to repentance. He, he can sort that out. But he's watched. Anyway, let's just read this. But notice all of the vertical offense David is taking at the wicked. Um, in that sense, false religion should offend us. Like they're giving glory to idols, not the living God. Even if those people in false religion are not hunting the poor, David would be just as upset and incensed. Verse 2 of, of chapter Psalm 10. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursues the poor. Let them be caught in their schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts the desires of his soul, and the greedy one gate curses and denounces the Lord. So there's two things. It's the horizontal sin, and this guy's cursing God. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His way prospers at all times. Your judgments on are on high. Out of his sight, as for all his foes, he puffs them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall meet no adversity. I'm secure. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the village. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he might seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them in his net. The helpless are crushed. But now, here's the other reason David's upset is the victims, the helpless, right? Um, the helpless and the poor and the fatherless we're going to see. Helpless are crushed and sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten me. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. Lift up your hand. Forget not your afflicted. So one of the reasons David wants this judgment is to teach these arrogant, wicked people who say there is no God. God, Yes, he is. He does see. But in one and the same action, in that judgment, he's also defending the poor. So there's actually two reasons David wants this judgment. Humble silence these men, teach them that they're but men. And in the same act, he is fighting for the cause of the poor and the oppressed. So for both of those reasons, David's calling, those are good reasons to want judgment. And that doesn't mean you're not trying to love your enemy, you're not trying to turn the other cheek. You can do both. Again, part of what the Psalms show us is a complexity of emotion where David's celebrating the sovereignty of God, God's control, and he's vexed and not knowing why things are happening. You can call out for judgment and for God to defend the oppressed and the poor, and try to obey the Sermon on the Mount, loving your enemy. You, you can. You can. Um, so keep going. Um, Arise, O Lord, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call it to account? But you do see, for you note the mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the father of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account. And 
till you find none. The Lord is king forever. The nations perish from this land, his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. So David's two consuming passions against the wicked are the victims, the human victims of the wicked, and their their attack on God, their presumption and arrogance towards God. Both of those are motivating his um, desire for justice. And if that's what we're passionate about, pray for God to come. We are going to, and here's the other reality, Sarah. In our sinfulness, it is very hard for us to parse out our own singer, sing, single anger, sinful, our sinful anger. It is hard to parse out our sing, <laughs> sinful anger from righteous anger. And it's probably better to err on the side of, of not, you know. We will not, we will rejoice, we will exult, we will praise God on the day of judgment. And everything we see, even in the New Testament, as John gets his vision on Patmos, is come, Lord Jesus, come. What's he coming to do? He's coming to to afflict those who afflict and to comfort those afflicted. It's the same pattern here. He's coming to comfort those who are poor and trust in him, and he's coming to humble and break with a rod of iron the arrogant who are oppressing them. Um, So it's the same desires we see in Psalm 9 are precisely what Jesus is coming to do at the second coming. Um, that's one of the reasons why I introduced that new song is because we don't actually have a whole lot of songs that focus on the second coming. And yet in the Psalms, so often it's the final judgment that ultimately is, we, we can live with the injustice and the suffering and the oppression around us today because we have confidence in the final judgment. That's a logic of so many of the Psalms that I thought... It'd be really good if we could actually introduce a new song that actually focuses on that. That's kind of my, the thinking behind that. Um, so, so, so often that is how, it, I mean, Tim Keller gives the example of a guy in his church from Cambodia who experienced, you know, they refer to as the killing fields. And he said, honestly, the only way he's able to love his enemy, the only way he's able to turn to the cheek is his confidence in the judgment to come. That because there is a hell, because there is wrath, because there is judgment, I can leave that to God, and I can love my enemy. So these it's not as simple as just be nice and wish good things for them, or just call wrath love. It's much more complicated. But there clearly is a place for this. There clearly is, is, is room for these prayers. The, the challenge for us, I think, is often we think either we want God to judge them or we want to be kind to them, or we want God to save them. And I think you can probably do a bunch of those things at the same time, because I'm not judging them. So while while God delays, while he knows what's best, I'm going to love my enemy. Even as I'm praying, God, let your kingdom come, bring justice. But apparently he knows best, and apparently that's not going to happen today, so I'm going to go love my enemy and turn the other cheek, right? I mean, I think that's how you begin to put those pieces together. Anyway, um, Thank you. Other thoughts or questions? We've got about five minutes to go. Oh, happy belated birthday. Kyle Stark, everybody. Kyle Stark. Okay. Five minutes. Come on. Anybody? Bueller. Bueller. Nope. 
Devil's Garden. Not a deep question. Oh. Well, five minutes, that's perfect. Yeah, but you mentioned this uh, acrostic thing. So mm. how does that work? We've got 28 verses here. Is each verse a letter? Is it divided up that way? Or what's the No, there there's actually one letter. I, I don't have it in front of me. There's one letter that's repeated. They, a couple are skipped. That's not unusual, by the way, for acrostics. Psalm 145 is an acro- a perfect acrostic with one missing letter. With the Septuagint adds. Well, it's perfect except. So... So this one, it starts out great, and towards the end of Psalm 9, it starts falling apart. Um, it'd be kind of like going A, B, C, D, and then midway through, you skip a letter or two, and that, that sort of happens. But then Psalm 10 ends it perfectly. Like the plane lands perfectly, but in the middle, there's, I think, two letters that are repeated and four letters that are skipped or something, so it's not a, a perfect acrostic. But there's enough of an acrostic. It's, it's undeniably an acrostic. It's not accidental that that happened. Um, so that's perfect. 119 is perfect. A, per, a perfectly executed acrostic. Um, yeah. No, that's, I could, I mean, I could get the books and find out exactly what the answer is, but it's not, it's not an exact acrostic, but it's, it's like 80% on point. And that's not a suggestion, by the way, that there's error in it. Some people have thought, Psalm 145, which is missing a verse, it was, in t- there's whole theories on why that's intentionally done and stuff. So, and sometimes, as I find out with my outlines, you just can't make it line up. And it, trust me, it is better to abandon the alliteration than to force it. We had a prof- godly guy, I love him, uh, Dr. Mayhew, but he would like make words up to put them into his outline. You know, it's a revelator. It's not a word, Dr. Mayhew. The inspirator. Nope, didn't, nope, that, that's not a word either. Um, but it, it fitted into his thing. Um, yeah, no, seriously. And, you know, he's, he was a godly guy, knew his stuff, but he would he was so like his his outlines would be acrostic. He just... <laughs> By the way, did you know that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus alliterates? In Greek, he does. Well, no, that's, that's where we get it from. It's a divine pattern. No, um, in, in the Beatitudes, both sets show alliteration um, in the Greek. So, We are at time. I will let you all go. Godspeed. Have a good Lord's Day. And uh, God willing, I'll see you next week or sooner.